cultures of assembly. Cultures of Assembly is a project for spaces of agonism and democracies in the making. It is generated by friction, negotiation and conflict, where the public sphere opens to new social and political practices. We engage in the discourse and spatial politics in the physical and the non-physical public spheres. We are Francel Kane, Maria Maric, Marcus Missen, and Cesar Reyes. Today, we are focusing on democratic practices with Rahel Sus. Episode number two. Okay, so maybe we start with a not so global question, uh, which is um, actually connecting to what you just said. So, what constitutes the object of repair in your work? What are you trying to repair? What are you trying to fix? I think this is a really, um, I mean, it's a really great question to begin with, I guess, and uh, not an easy one. <laughs> um, but I guess the question like, is, what is my contribution to the debate on the future of democracy? Because this is, this is what I'm interested in. So I'm, I'm looking at notions of democracy. So how can we understand democracy? How can we understand the task of democracy, especially in this kind of society where we see that digital technologies become more and more important in mediating our yeah, daily social relations? So, and obviously with this comes a lot of problems. Right. So when you think about democracy, so the question of like repair is for me the question of so what I think I can contribute to this debate um, on um, the future of democracy. And for me, I guess the starting point is that I observed that the problem of democracy is often framed in terms of a problem of democratic legitimacy or like a loss of democratic legitimacy. And I think we here we can think of, for example, like people don't really feel represented or they also feel that they don't have democratic control over the decisions that actually affect them in, in their daily lives, right? So, and I feel quite uncomfortable or I, I feel very uncomfortable with this kind of framing of the problem of democracy because it kind of gives a certain impression or like it kind of leads to a certain idea or vision of what solutions might can look like. And this is actually what, what we can see and practice. So for example, like if we start from this idea of a loss of democratic legitimacy, then what we can see is that talking about the future of democracy With this goes often like together this idea of, or this vision of, I, I guess like many have this vision of that we can fix this problem of democratic legitimacy by just kind of like introducing these new democratic innovations, such as uh, lottery-based assemblies or mini publics, or also these kind of civic technologies. And what really, I think, impressed me about this vision of the future of democracy is that it primarily translates 
into political strategies of conflict resolution, right? And I think this is the fundamental problem here. And, and here I come back to your question. So what's my contribution or how do I see how, or what do I think we actually have to repair? Um, so I think we have to repair for the very beginning, like for, we have to start by thinking of what is actually the problem. So when we talk about democracy and the problem of democracy, I think we have to rethink what is the problem of democracy. So for example, if many people share this vision that we can fix problems of democratic legitimacy with assemblies, for example, then I would say this is not really kind of helping us to address structural inequalities in our democratic society. And this is partly because people who advocate for this vision of democracy, they often understand democratic institutions as somehow neutral, right? And not really structured by unequal power relations. And what is important here for me is that in this context, social conflicts are often understood as disagreements and not actually as conflicts of power. And as a consequence, you can then see that the task of democracy is often understood as one of conflict resolution, as I said before. So the idea of uh, building compromises between conflicting individual interests and repairing democracy for me would then mean to kind of, in the first place, change how we think about democracy, right? So rather than to think of democracy primarily as a practice of conflict or problem resolution, what I suggest in my work is to think of democracy as a practice of problematization. And here the assumption is that a democratic order is not neutral, right? But it grants some people and some social groups some privileges while actually takes it from others. So if we understand democracy primarily as a practice of problematization, a consequence of this would then be that we understand the task of democracy not as one that has to build compromises, right? But to kind of permanently self-reflect upon these kind of self-produced structural inequalities. And I guess what I, the key idea here is to say that if we think of freedom, like the promise of democracy, so the promise, the promise of freedom and equality for all, freedom and equality for all will not just automatically follow from institutions per se, right? But we have to fight for them. We have to struggle. We need political struggles again and again to actually bring these kind of promises alive. And this is what I try to do with my, yeah, with, by introducing this notion of democracy as a practice of problematization. So this problematization or this practice of problematization is in a way then also a process of making problems, but also these conflicts visible, right? Yeah, it's exactly this. It's exactly, it's exactly this idea that we have to make conflicts in our society, conflicts over power in our society visible, right? And then the question is, how can we do this, right? And we can't definitely do that. We cannot just rely on political institutions to, to do this task, because from history, we know that they are actually not really equipped to do this <laughs> properly. So who should do this? I mean, my take on this is, I mean, people familiar with my work, they would <coughs> know that my take on this is that 
it's so important to acknowledge the role of social movements and political struggles in general and um, collective organizing for this task because we can't really wait. So if we think of democracy like as a social process that kind of brings forward some winners and losers, so to kind of really put it very simple, um, and it's not this kind of, so if you think of democracy not as as something like, as this kind of neutral political order that serves like a common good, but actually more as a, as a result of social conflicts. And so when we then ask the question, how can we change our democratic order? Because we recognize that this democratic order is not just, because as we know, like one, not everyone, not one person, one vote, or like, it's not that one person equals one vote, as the promise says, or it's not that um, we are all equal when it comes to kind of, I mean, we are all too familiar with these kind of, when we think about policing or uh, when we think about um, the law, it's not that everyone is equal here, right? So, so then the question is, if we acknowledge that in our democratic society, we have, there are like structural inequality and the, the way how this society operates uh, via its institution is actually a way of stabilizing these social inequalities. So then I would say what we really need is to acknowledge the role of social movements because we cannot actually wait that like fundamental change will actually follow from these political institutions. Raquel, now that you mentioned that possibility of, of the power of social movements, I was wondering that if social conflicts make possible the advancement of democracy, then maybe possibly only those with the tools and empowerment to provoke conflicts will be the ones actually shaping that democracy. And I'm wondering how social movements can at some point wonder that possibility that they actually have that, that power. Do you have any clue if that, that's possible? I mean, it's obviously a very, also a very complicated question. And, and this is something where we um, always have to really look at a very particular case, I guess. So if, I, I guess what you're trying, or what you're asking is um, how powerful are actually political struggles, right? So how, how powerful are they to bring about fundamental political and social change. And I mean, we can, I mean, one thing I can say is we can obviously look into the history of democracy and then we can see that it has always been like these kind of uprisings and social movements which forced us to democratize. So this is, so here we can maybe get a bit of an optimism. But then obviously when we look more like into the last 10 years or so, so with these kind of, like all these movements from 2011, like occupying the squares. I mean, they, I think it's this question of, uh, I understand why we always want to, like, I understand why we wish to understand better how powerful they are or what are actually the concrete effects. But I guess it's somehow very difficult to say what are their concrete uh, effects. And we can also see that they are transforming a lot, right? So we see, so 2011, we had all these square movements and then we had these movement parties with Podemos, et cetera. And um, so there is this constant 
transformation of or or yeah, let's call it transformation or a very dynamic um, relationship of 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 these uh, social movements. So I guess there is not the one answer. So we always have to look at a very particular case. And I think what interests me most right now is to actually see and worries me a lot is especially here in the context uh, in the UK is that we can actually see um, almost like a not almost but actually a criminalization of protest and the right to protest. So when I make an argument, so I'm basically arguing that provocations and social conflicts are a condition for democracy. And the reason why I'm arguing is or making this argument is that on the one hand, we can see that the role of movements and, and provocations, they are often made very invisible. Like, so for example, in, 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 um, in one of my writings, I start with this example that uh, here in the UK, there is this citizenship test. And as part of this citizenship test, there is this kind of uh, paragraph on where basically the British, uh, the idea is that, uh, that the end of slavery and the end of um, the British Empire is an achievement by by Britain and the British government in a way. So by by saying this in this British citizenship test, um, what they then actually do is they really kind of ignore the role of all these uprisings and and and, and movements. And I think this is one thing we can see. And on the other hand, what we can see is we can see that uh, protest is often. Um, the right to protest is criminalized or delegitimized. Um, and we see it, for example, here in the UK, there, there is this kind of debate on this new um, police bill where they really wanted to really want to ban, like, for example, protesting in front of railway stations or other kind of important infrastructures. And they say they just kind of explain this by saying that this would cause too much disruptions for for like the normal people going to work and etc. So I think these are really things and signs which worries me a lot, especially when we think of democracy as 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 something which is not just about uh, elections or political institutions or competing political parties, but that democracy is always, or what democracy needs um, are like democratic provocations. And by this, I mean like all these kind of protests and collective organizing, which is actually not happening within these institutional arrangements. Because these institutional arrangements, as I said before, they can't really bring about fundamental political change. Uh, talking about provocation, do you know what uh, kind of tools could actually could be used to reject these consensual conceptions of democracy in order to indeed return to this kind of like more provocative interpretation and maybe lead to a kind of what you could call politics of provocation? And maybe if you could elaborate on this. I think what is really important for my understanding of democracy as a practice of problematization is the idea of social freedom instead of individual freedom, right? So I'm basically, I'm criticizing a lot in my work, this idea of liberal democracy as being, yeah, as kind of, yeah, being tied to ideas of like a hyper-individualism and also this idea that we are all like these kind of rational actors with all our 
yeah, individual interest and then uh, politics and the task of politics is then to kind of just collect all these preferences and then show what the common will is actually about. But understanding the people as individuals, rational individuals who are just interested in following their own kind of, yeah, to, to self, like to fulfill their self realization. And I think this is a very narrowed and limited understanding of democracy and um, the task of democracy because it kind of denies that, or it has a very particular idea of what a society is or could look like. And by this, I mean that it's basically a society formed by just individuals, right? And people who are just interested in their individual freedom and not in their social freedom. And wouldn't start from the assumption that we are always already associated with each other. So we have, we should have like this, obviously this intrinsic interest in also taking care of like our social freedom. So, so this is one thing to kind of confront ideas of individualism and hyper-individualism by an idea of um, social, social freedom. And the reason why this is so important for me is that, um, that kind of the, I guess many people would kind of probably submit to this idea that that privileges in our society, they are earned, right? And, and they're like a natural outcome of, of something. And I think this is very misleading, obviously. And if, um, we think of democracy as or democratic order as um, as not kind of yeah as as what I said at the very beginning. If we think of a democratic order not as one which is structured by like very deep social inequalities, right, and like conflicts of power, then obviously we come to the conclusion that privileges are earned, well deserved, etc. But the way how I like to think about democracy uh, is as I also said before, is as like a, like a social order which gives some people, grants some people privileges by taking it from others. So, so if 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 we accept this, then obviously, then then the question would be, um, how can we how can we change this? And 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 so, how can we really address these uh, social inequalities? And how can we prevent that political institutions? Would like would just go on stabilizing and reproducing the social uh, um, inequalities. So, so one way of how I think we should actually or we could do this is, and this is kind of within this tradition of radical democratic theory, is the idea that democracy is not just about elections, right? So we shouldn't think of democracy as simply something tied to a political sphere, but it's important to think of democracy as something like as a, like a social social life. And in, in practice, this could mean that we have to expand democratic demands for freedom and equality to more and more social spheres, right? So this is the idea of, of, of the radical part. So it's really going to the roots, changing the society from within, but this would mean really going to seeing where we, where are the spaces where we associate with others? And then we can think about workplace democracy. We can think about democracy at the university. 
we can think about democracy um, in, in care homes, etc. So everywhere where we kind of come together with other people, where decisions are made, uh, which affects us, this is the place where we kind of need democratic control over them. So I think if we, this is, and this is going back to your question, this could be one tool. So we first, obviously, as a political theorist, I'm, I'm interested in all these conceptual questions, but because I believe that they can make such a difference. So struggling over concepts and reaffirming ideas can make such a huge difference of then how we think about political strategies. Because obviously, if we apply a certain understanding of democracy as liberal democracy, as kind of what I said before, giving priority to individual freedom, for example, then certain kind of political strategies of repairing democracy would automatically follow. But if you think of democracy more like in this radical democratic tradition, thinking of privileges, thinking of um, um, power relations, um, then obviously what I just, what I said at the very beginning, the conclusion of what is actually the problem of democracy would be a very different one. So, and then if we have a different idea of what the problem of democracy is, then we also have a different idea of what potential solutions are. And I guess we might probably talk more about the, the role of assemblies, assemblies and all these other kind of new democratic innovations. But I think this is just so key to understand that if we want to think about alternatives, if we want to think about how to democratize our democracy, we first have to struggle over the assumptions we have when we actually talk about democracy. Yeah, I think it's super interesting what you said about democracy as a kind of daily practice, let's say. Because um, for me, this is almost working towards democracy as a kind of culture or cultural concern or towards a culture of democratization. And this also in a, in a very interesting way, I think, connects to the question of repair, which, um, I mean, was also, of course, uh, part of the question of the object of repair here, but also, uh, let's say, the question of repair in a larger context, also concerning, for example, the transition movement and so on. But I'm wondering, so this also, in a way, necessitates, let's say, at least a certain trust and optimism, no? Because it means that you trust people to do this without them being, let's say, forced, in inverted commas, into a particular structural framework. Mm -hmm. So can I ask just, uh, so trust, so that we trust each other in, in a society or we trust the people? Both, I think, that we trust each other. But also that, let's say, you as an individual or we as a group of people who are right now discussing this subject would trust others to go through this process of or this cultural process of democratization. Yeah. I mean, I think trust is always good, but <laughs> I'm not convinced that trust is enough. <laughs> Uh, if we really yeah, <laughs> want to bring about fundamental change. Um, it's a bit like with, um, perhaps you are familiar with these debates. Um, some people would say, oh, if we want to repair democracy, it's we kind of just have to strengthen respect, like values like respect or tolerance. This reminds me a bit of this trust, the idea of trust. Oh, if we would all trust each other a bit more. I mean, kind of what this suggests is that we, again, this, this suggests that we 
we have all an interest in repairing democracy or repairing the current democratic order. But if we understand the current democratic order as one from which some benefit and others not, then obviously the people who benefit, I don't necessarily think that they would voluntarily give up their power, right? So, so it's a bit like, I don't know the English word, it's a bit like thinking of the good mensch. So, so I think it's, it's always good to trust in people and the goodwill of the people. But if we talk about structural inequalities, we have to address the question of power and we have to address, uh, we have, uh, we have to ask questions like who benefits from a certain social order? Who benefits from the way our institutions are designed? Who benefits from the processes of these institutions, like the, the process designs of these institutions, right? So, and all these kind of questions are so important to ask. And then we can also ask why these questions are not actually asked, right? So, because when we talk about the problem of democracy, we don't really talk, for example, about white privileges, right? So we can often see that um, I mean, even in Germany, my impression is, but maybe I'm, 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 I'm wrong, but even like talking about systemic racism is relatively absent. I mean, we had more recently, I guess, this debate because of like this, uh, police, uh, because of like, uh, um, how do you say, um, think cases happening in the police, right? And some obviously would say, oh, this is kind of structural and others would say, oh no, there were just a few bad people in a way. So I feel like even talking about structural racism, uh, in, in institutions, it's not something which which kind of is easy to do in, in Germany, but, but maybe this is just my, my impression, right? And so the strategies when thinking about, for example, in this context of racism, what we can see is that strategies are often strategies of inclusion, right? But then if you, if you for example, say we live in a... So Joel Olson, like a political theorist, he wrote this book, Abolishing White Democracy, and he would criticize and say, there is no point in including someone in a white polity, right? So you, you, you won't really change anything about all these kind of democratic deficits if your strategy is just to include someone in a white polity. And by this, he means that if we, if we understand the current democratic order as one where, which kind of distributes white privileges, Right. So then including others in this kind of democratic order won't really do much of a change. And we can also see this. It's a bit like a similar within this kind of topic. We can see this, for example, um, the way how liberal Democrats um, position themselves against uh, racist kind of propaganda. So what we can often see is that they would say, oh, we are the liberal Democrats and they are the illiberal Democrats. But what they are doing are not Democrats, but the illiberal movements or parties. But what within these debates, what I observe, what we can often see that they then, so liberal Democrats, they would, they kind of construe racism as something from the past. And they kind of position themselves as this progressive force against racism while at the same time, and while at the same time actually like covering up for that the history of liberal democracy is so much intertwined with racism, with colonialism, with imperialism, uh, uh, et cetera, right? So, so I think this is really something um, which we have to understand better 
Also, when we think about strategies of, let's call it like respect, tolerance, trust, like all these kind of calling for these values, um, um, because I feel they are, yeah, it's good, but they won't, in the end, won't really ch change much, I believe. Okay, but so these strategies, as you name them, uh, let's call them strategies of democratic becoming, they also somehow need to be designed, right? I mean, what could those strategies consist of? So they're partially, as you already mentioned, structural, they're also institutional, they're also, let's say, policy related. The reason why I'm asking this is to basically open another door, maybe away from this uh, kind of trust-based or the idea of something that is rather cultural with a big C, but something that maybe has to be uh, kind of practiced on a on a daily level? Yeah. No, I think there are so many... Um, I mean, if, if the question is like, again, this question of democratic repair, right? So how could we actually do this in practice? And, and I think you're right that we have to look at so many different levels. So obviously we have to kind of um, really reshape our political institutions. And then one way uh, of doing this could be to say, oh, we have to reshape our political institutions in a way that they make conflicts over power visible and that they kind of um, allow for continuous conflicts in a way, right? So so just like a, one example is that in political parties, we often see that, I mean, everyone wants to avoid that, like a political party wants to avoid to give the impression um, that there is conflict within or like disagreement within the, the party, right? And this is just on a very small scale. So I think, so when we think about reshaping political institution, we have to, to think of them as institution who have to kind of really enable conflict. And here I'm not just talking about disagreement because this is what we see in these assemblies in all these kind of deliberate, deliberative settings. So it has to be somehow more than this. And then we can discuss maybe, yeah, what this could mean. And um, so this is one thing. So how can we reshape our political institutions? The other thing I kind of touched up on was, uh, yeah, we need more democracy in our everyday lives in the sense that we have to think of democratic practices. We need more democratic control over decisions that affect us. So here it would, yeah, here it's just important to think of um, introducing more democratic control in, as I said before, the workplace, uh, the universities, other kind of educational institutions, etc. So that we really, yeah, that, that this becomes part of our culture, part of our daily life. So this is, this is the other thing. I think another important point is, um, yeah, collectively organizing, right? So not just waiting um, for politicians to kind of solve our problems, which often they won't do anyway, or they're teaming up with experts and giving the impression that political problems are actually not our problems, like are, are not collective problems, but they are actually technical problems which can be solved by experts. And then we have the politicians mediating this relationship, which I believe is a is a, like a very dangerous way of depoliticizing. So if we think of this culture, yeah, if we think of we need like a fundamentally shift our political culture, then I would suggest we need something 
I think John Huey called it, uh, we have to democratize um, expertise. And it would start by thinking, by, by, by kind of stopping thinking of like politicians are doing politics and we doing everything else. There should be no thing like Berufspolitiker. So politicians who do this as a job, right? But maybe we could think more as a rotating system and maybe not more than four or five years. And uh, or obviously also within this idea of lottery-based assemblies, you can also see that there is this assumption that they are not experts on the one hand and then they are all the people on the other hand. So it's basically to think of everyone has the social... No it's about experiences, right? So putting experiences, very concrete experiences of the people first in this democratic process, rather than saying, oh, there are certain kind of problems we have to face and we have to solve. And this is now what we're going to do with with like the help of experts or the help of the so-called free market or or with new technologies. But but kind of starting from from the very concrete everyday practices of, of people. And this would mean we would listen to them and not we would listen to them. This would mean like really kind of um, building institutions, building political processes around these very concrete practical experiences of people. So, and then the consequences of this would be to, 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 to enable these people, enable all of us to share our experiences, to share our, so if you would probably be in a room with, or like, I mean, now we are four of us and if everyone would just share um, um, his or her experience with what the problem of democracy is, we would probably get like such a range of different ideas of what the problem of democracy is. And by problem, I don't mean like like conceptual ideas of the problem of democracy, but I mean like very concrete, a very concrete experiences where we maybe in our kind of everyday life experience a lack of democratic control, right? And if we would start listening more to all these experiences, then from this could then follow that we would also probably get so much more ideas of, or we actually would start a conversation about um, what loss of democratic control means, for example, or what democratic self-determination actually means. So I think I'm, I'm really advocating for, for having a discussion, having a discussion about uh, democracy and the problems of democracy, which is not just limited to the idea that our political institutions are not working the way they work. And one good example, for example, is that now, now that digital technologies become so important, so many people would just be worried that our political institutions, they are not fit enough, right? So we can think about privacy regulations and other kind of forms. So now what we see is that that what they're trying to do is they try to introduce all these civic technologies. Again, it's this paradigm of increased participation by using digital platforms, which then mediate our relationship with the politicians or the people working in these yeah, in this uh, state's bureaucracy apparatus. And so it's the idea that we can fix problems of democratic legitimacy by just kind of applying new digital technologies. And I think this is a kind of misleading, uh, yeah, misleading approach to the problem because it does not really address that, for example, just staying with this example of technologies, that technologies or data, because here we're talking about data, so data is always representing like an already quite 
unequal society. And then what we can see if 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 government and and, and if if governing is more and more based on data, on the use of data, then obviously what we can see or what can be quite dangerous is that through this use of these digital technologies, these social inequalities already um, um, represented by, by these technologies, they are just getting reinforced, right? So, and there are several examples, and I can probably talk about them for, like, for a few hours. Um, but so I think what I want to say is, so rather than to think about democratic repair as uh, using either strategies of also the market, right? So what we see, for example, here, when we talk about the social ecological transformation, what like politicians, or not just politicians, um, but what like most people would probably kind of agree is that um, that the market sends the right, or the price mechanism sends the right signals, and then we actually know what to do, how to fix the crisis, right? It's kind of, there is this very, widespread assumption that the market is actually the better guarantor for democracy. And so this is one thing. And then with these new technologies, we see that, again, uh, democratic or collective questions are translated in te technological questions. So, so, so then basically new technologies will solve all our problems. So for every social problem, there is an algorithm. And I think what I try to do with my work is to show that neither the market, neither these technologies, neither kind of a democratic politics focusing on experts is solving any of the issues we actually have, which is an issue with social inequality, which gets reinforced by the political institutions we have, we have by the markets, by the new digital technologies. So if we want to change anything fundamentally, we really have to talk about democracy and we have to talk about the question of power here. Okay, super interesting. We will definitely return to this uh, subject of outsourcing of responsibility a little bit later. I just wanted to um, pick up the audience and uh, maybe contextualize something that you said earlier, which is super interesting and which I would like you to elaborate on. So you talked about uh, this, let's say, concept of organizing, both in a kind of self-initiated way and in a structural way. And so one of the examples that you gave was lottery-based assemblies. And I think it would be great if you could elaborate on this a little bit, because I think some people may not be aware of what this actually is. Yeah, thank you. Lottery-based assemblies is, um, we can actually see them um, quite prominently, especially since 2016, there was this Irish um, assembly. And basically what is, and then now we can see like everywhere. So last year, for example, there was this very, uh, again, like very, I wouldn't say influential, but it was, yeah, a lot in the news. So the French government set up this climate assembly and lottery-based based means in this, uh, in this context that, um, that, that there's a lot, right? So if you think about ancient Greek and so the beginning of democracy, so, um, or like not going there maybe, but so the idea basically that you try to create like a representative mini public. So for example, you choose 100 people who then get engaged in this kind of conversation over how new kind of climate policies should look like. And then they would work over several weekends together. They would work on recommendations. And then after these several weekends, they spend together. They also listen kind of to experts. They had like all these kind of small rounds. And then they would kind of put together like all these recommendations and hand it over in this case to the French, um, to the French government. And then 
but we can come to this point later, what happens with this recommendation. But so lottery in this case is the idea that you create a mini Germany, for example, right? So you really try to have these, so the 100 people selected by lot, they represent Germany in like, in a, like on, on a small scale. And because obviously you can't have like 80, more than 80 million people engaging in this conversation. So, and then what happens is that, that people work on this recommendation and, and then they hand it over to Macron and then this it is. So, so they are not binding and this is probably, we'll talk about this a bit more. So these structural shortcomings of these lottery-based assemblies are that they are not binding. They are often actually not so representative as they wish to be. So often the experts are kind of more like from one field or the people who participate in these kind of assemblies, they have like, uh, they come from a certain social educational background, although although the, the, the aim is to really avoid this, but still because of, again, like maybe you can't afford going to these meetings, maybe you're, you, you don't have the confidence to go. So there are all these kind of like more structured things which play then into that, then in the end, it's actually not as representative as they, as, as, yeah, as they wish for. But so, so where we are going with this is a bit like, so some, so we can see, so we have it on many, like on the local level a lot, these kind of lottery based assemblies and they, people would have like all these conversations. I mean, it's called deliberation. So they, they sit together, they talk about the problem. And then the idea is that, this is actually quite interesting idea because because the idea of democracy um, and especially the role of elections. So the assumption was often that um, like there are all these individuals, they have their interests, but in order to understand, to order to kind of know how to represent the will of the people, right? We have elections, so we collect all these kind of uh, different particular uh, preferences because the assumption is that the prefer our preferences are fixed and stable. So what the interesting idea about these uh, assemblies is now that the assumption is that our preferences, they are not actually fixed and stable, but that we can change them and that we can learn from each other and that we are willing to listen to each other. So opening this space where we come together and we might have like huge disagreements and we actually have like, yeah, very different values and very different ideas of how how the society should look like or what should be the guiding principles of our political institutions. So, but then we all come together and we, we deliberate, we have this conversation and then in the end we vote on 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 some kind of agenda points and then in the end we have these recommendations and yeah okay but so regarding these recommendations i have a question because this is also in a way a question of structural design no because these recommendations of course only make sense if there's so to speak the next step within the let's say political ladder in inverted commas that these recommendations will be passed on to, right? Because otherwise, what do you recommend and for whom? So that's the thing. I mean, they would say that, I mean, there are, there are different ideas here. So one is to say that, oh, we live in a representative democracy. So obviously we have some instruments of direct democracy, but in a way, so some people would defend this kind of only recommendation by saying, oh yeah, but we are voting for representatives, right? It cannot now be that we 
set up all these new democratic innovations, assemblies, etc. Because this is kind of going around the system we designed, which is a representative democracy. Right? So we have already the representatives. So why now also having then assemblies who then have the power to decide on something? So this this is one kind of critique for people who would actually like to see this going further, who would like to say that the people are actually voting. It's not just about putting together the recommendations, but also having the power, like forcing the politicians to actually really put them in practice. So, and the other thing is that, um, so what we can see, for example, is that, so in the case of the France Climate Assembly, so one recommendation was, or actually I think Macron even promised, if I'm not mistaken, that there will be a referendum. So one way of going around this critique that, oh, we live in this representative society, um, so we cannot just set up all these kind of new democratic innovations, da, 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 da. So one way of going around this is then to say, okay, we have these assemblies and they're working on recommendations and because they are just recommendations, what we then can do is then they pick like, let's say one demand and these dem then there has to be one referendum, which is like an instrument of direct democracy, which is kind of part of the constitution, etc. And then there would be like a referendum on this one demand. And in France, this one demand was to implement, uh, to protect, like a right to protect our environment uh, in the constitution. And I, I believe that Macron initially said there would be like a referendum on this. But then last year in summer, they basically said, the government basically said, no, we won't actually do this. Yeah. So I think this is very, very interesting because then obviously it's, it, it brings up this question of, oh, why then are they doing all these assemblies? And my suspicion is that it's a way of addressing the frustration of people right, or giving kind of the impression that they are caring. But then because they're these kind of institu uh, institutions, they don't really have power. They don't have to be actually scared of losing any kind of, of, of benefits or they don't really, they are not really forced, right, to, to change something fundamentally about, about political processes or institutions. So it's a legitimationsbeschafferin. So it's just kind of a way of bringing legitimacy to, to our democracies in a way, to our democratic institutions, while in the end, I believe it's actually doing more harm because in the long term, people might be just, I mean, we, we probably it's too early to say because these democratic innovations, they are still, I mean, there are so many experiments going on with them, right? In, in France, for example, one idea is to implement like a permanent lottery-based assembly as a, like a third chamber, and I mean, these are kind of probably all, all conversations and processes we are having now for the next years. And obviously we have to see where, where this is going, but I'm glad that we at least have this conversation. While I, I feel my role is more to add to these conversations that, uh, yeah, that, that, that this is not enough. So just having these kind of assemblies, they probably won't be able to, to address these structural inequalities I talked about before i mean i think this uh this is totally um interesting and i think super relevant because this uh, political legitimization that you're talking about i think it's also a, a question or let's say a tool of outsourcing of responsibility and i think the question here is not only how to mobilize but also how to design processes of how the information 
and the materials and the knowledge that's being produced on these smaller scale assemblies can actually trickle up. So in a way, how, how is this process of translation taking place? Because I think, I, I think you're totally right. From what I can see at the moment, there's a lot of interesting initiatives. But you could also argue that they're the ones who've been deliberately put into place. You could also say that there's like the kind of strategic tools to quiet down people, even if what on the surface they're doing is obviously the opposite. So people can speak up, but it's kind of like a strategy of soothing in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is a very um, important, but also technical question. And I guess this is something we need. I mean, I, I definitely have, have no answer to this question, but I think this is, this is one of so many interesting questions uh, we actually, which is also the reason why we have to get together and, and figure this out, right? So I think it's so important so to also think about these process designs in a process, like, like having also assemblies, which is not just which are not just about having conversations to then, as an outcome, having all these recommendations for then politicians to put into practice. But I think what we also need are these conversations, maybe within these assembly settings, how this process can actually be designed. And, and because the problem is not just with these institutions. The problem is, as you said, it's also with the design. Like, so one thing is, how do we actually get to decisions? And then what are the guiding principles who make this kind of so, for example, I talked, I talked before about this inclusion, this idea, this value of inclusion and the participation. So if the logic of these, these new institutional designs is one that tries to include as many people as possible and tries to increase participation as much as possible, but at the same time does not reflect upon so, for example, white privileges or certain kind of privileges, then then there's nothing to win, I, I believe. So, so this is why I think we need, it cannot be that there is like a small group of consultants, for example, who think about the, the project design of, of like an assembly. And for example, right now we have this, it's not called assembly, interestingly, it's called the Conference on the Future of Europe. But as I understood it, it's like also this idea, I think this, it's again like lottery-based, um, small groups of people coming together and discussing this question. And from what I know, there is like like there are like there are like people like people set this up, right? So people set up this process. And I think what I would be interested in is um, how can there be a participatory process of thinking how to set up this kind of process, you know, like this this process then to then have this conversation. <laughs> Uh, so thinking about like how can we in the first place design the process, which then at the end of the process we have as an output we have like yeah more the structural design and then ideally what I have in mind. But again, I'm I'm more like a political theorist, so I'm I'm more thinking struggling over ideas. But what I kind of like is I'm very interested in how dynamic settings could actually look like. So so. So rather than we think of, oh, there's this group of people who decide how the process design looks like, then we have the structure setting, then you put in people in these structure settings who then have this conversation 
then there is a certain output, then this output goes to the government. So I would be interested in thinking how all this can kind of go together at the same time. So for example, you have, obviously you start with thinking about the process design, but then when you go to the kind of second stage and you're, you're having more of the conversation about, um, let's say, how you want to organize public transport in your city, then at this, like what should go parallel is always also reflecting up on the process design. And there should be space to make adjustment, adjustments to these process designs, I believe. Because I think the reason why I'm saying this is that from this kind of background of radical democratic thought, the idea is that so democratic structures, they are always based on exclusions of other possibilities. So if we think of democracy as, or the key idea of democracy as one that we constantly have to be able to negotiate alternatives, so and the task is to keep the future open, then I think we sh have to integrate this logic into these, yeah, into these political processes, right? And this would mean, so I, I call it a bit like means and ends constantly adjust each other in, in like this process. So we are going forward, but it's not that we once decided on the means, on like, let's say first we decided on the, the, the end, right? So, and then we decide on the means, how we get there. And then everything is kind of fixed and stable. And then at the end, we do an evaluation of what did yeah, go well and what not. And then we might do it again in 10 years or something. So I'm interested in so thinking about institutional designs. I'm interested actually in how we can create more dynamic designs that allows for means and ends being constantly adjust to each other. Right. So if we if we say okay if we if we set up if we say the pro, we wanna the topic is how do we organize public transport in our city, then we have to be open obviously what the output could be, um, and we have to kind of also, I believe, be open what are the guiding principles um, for this process so we get to a result of this process, and yeah. But yeah, I can just say I have no, I have no solution to this. <laughs> I'm just asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's super interesting. So, but uh, talking about normative forms of participation, I mean, participation takes time and is therefore expensive and therefore also excluding, right? Because it means that not everyone will be in the luxury position to be doing these kind of let's call them daily practices. So how could this be overcome? I mean, what could be a way to somehow uh, deal with this matter? So first, I think this is a bit of a misleading way to look at, uh, at the problem, because this is a bit the critique of liberal Democrats against people who advocate for more forms of direct democracy. They would either say, oh, the people don't have the knowledge, everything is so complicated, Right. Or they would say, oh, people don't have the time. So let's like, I mean, we have this kind of distribution of labor, as I said before. So we are, we are taking care of this. They voted for us. We are taking care of this. So they don't have to. So, and I think it's misleading or for me, it's not really a convincing argument because first, not everyone has to decide on everything. 
right? And we see this in, in, in Switzerland, for example, if they, when they do their referendum, they're, I think they, they, like, they have always like a very kind of small percentage of people are actually voting on this. And this is not like a bad thing necessarily, because you can say that, oh, let's say we vote now on this or that to uh, topic, then everyone who feels who is interested or who feels, oh, I want to have a say in this or wanna, or this is really something which affects me, then can have a say on this. But I might not want to have a say on every single kind of small issue which which is kind of set up for vote. So I think this is not a very valued argument against more forms of, for example, direct democracy. I mean, of course, it's an issue of like when we think about um, economic inequality, of course, I mean, we can see this, who is voting, like who is actually voting right so we see this in germany for example that 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 the people who who come from financial more like disadvantaged backgrounds for example they they would tend to actually not vote more often than 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 other people and we can see this so we know already that in assemblies it's a bit it's a bit the same or like and not just in assemblies but also other forms of direct democracy so we can see that people from certain kind of social and um, economic backgrounds they they would um, often not participate as much in these kind of um, yeah um, and I I, I told, so I want to say this I absolutely understand this because then what we can see is that politicians are actually doing politics for a very particular social group right so obviously then I I understand why people feel not represented why they feel over years and years that they kind of needs, demands and everything, they're actually not represented. And this is not a secret. I mean, it's very obvious that the people in power, they are doing politics for a very particular group. Yeah, so so one thing what we could, this is why, for example, when we think about democracy and democratization, we always have to think also about, obviously, um, um, economic and other forms of social inequalities. So one form addressing this uh, point of um, some people can't actually afford in in participating in these kind of um, yeah new new democratic innovations formats, I mean some of them they introduced a comp a compensation. So some of them made sure that if you participate, you actually get compensated for it, or they make sure you get childcare and other kind of forms of compensation. But the general, like the more general problem here is that. Uh, yeah, that, that many people might not be able to afford this because either they have to, yeah, they just because they have to, to work, then they might have to take care of someone, etc. And here I would say it's like when you think about democratization and as like, like, like transforming, radically transforming our social life, right? Then we also have to talk about, for example, like a four-day week. We have to um, talk about um, um, how to kind of stabilize and build up our welfare state. We have to talk about good education and kind of a good health system and good working conditions. So all these kind of questions are so, so important when we think of, they, they, and also the other way around. So if we think about the social ecological transformation, or if we think about how, what we can do about ecologic, um, economic, um, inequalities we always in my view have to bring this together with the questions of democracy and yeah because we can't really we won't we, we won't be able to fundamentally we won't be able to really push forward like a real ecological and social ecological change without addressing without asking what the task of democracy can be actually within this transformation because otherwise we end up seeing that 
I mean, what we're basically seeing already, right? We see that we see all these attempts of like this kind of capitalist market economy tries to solve our climate problems, but actually not really touching up on the social hierarchies, which kind of, um, yeah, organizes our society. So if we don't really change anything fundamentally on how the society and the social hierarchy, like this, the social relationships, the social hierarchy, right, is keeping this society together, or like is the, the predominant logic of how our society is run, then I think we, we, we will really struggle to repair anything. Um, we, yeah, to repair democracy in the end. This being said, actually, Rahel, makes me think that, so you were a bit earlier talking about the physical space, the physical sphere of democracy, but as a counterpoint, somehow, these disparities that you already evoked um, become a bit different when it comes to the intangible sphere of democracy. And I'm talking about the digital mediated world we're living in. What has become the task of democracy in this world? And I mean... I'm thinking that the current situation arises a reaction that is occurring out of the institutions. It's kind of like even sometimes it becomes totally out of hand through social media. Basically, there are informal assemblies that are created and also disassemblies. I'm thinking about this very big meeting that should have been taken place in Tulsa by Donald Trump. And somehow lots of people around the world uh, through TikTok, the social media coming from China, somehow spread a very big word. I mean, maybe you have some um, other things to say about this because I suppose you're aware of it. So when this happened, basically hundreds of teenage TikTok users and K-pop fans took tickets for this big uh, rally in Tulsa. And in the end, what happened is that all, I mean, most of them were fake and there were not even apparently like 6,000 people, whereas uh, it should have been like a whole stadium full of thousands of people. This is obviously a very big change. It's a game changer also in the in the game of democracy as well. How do we deal with this? I mean, thinking of democracy in this context of new digital technologies, I mean, there are so many questions um, we have to think about. I mean, obviously, the one is so the one I'm mainly interested in is is how power relations are actually changing, like by applying all these digital technologies. But then also what new possibilities for social transformation we can actually see. And um, I think it's important to see digital technologies not as just simply like tools of oppression, right? Um, but also as enabling tools for bringing about, for potentially allowing us to democratically self-define Yeah, to, to, to allowing us to regain democratic control in a way. But by this, I mean, not just leaving it all to the technology, as I said before. So I think the fundamental question we have to ask, and we have to ask this question, um, for example, in these kind of settings of assemblies, we have to ask this question and debate the question in the parliament. But we also need to collectively organize around this This, this question um, in a non-institutional um, um, setting. And the question is like, how do we actually want to use technology in a way that it serves us and, and not kind of uh, like a few companies and, 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 and basically the profit-making machine, right? And I think this is such a 
This is such a crucial question because we can already see that big tech has so much power. And although governments are kind of want to give the impression that they have the power to regulate this sector, it's very difficult to see how they can actually do this. Sometimes I feel it's, it's especially when, when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to their strategies. So we can actually see that their strategies are often like on privacy enhancing strategies, or they try kind of, yeah, some, some sort of state regulations. But my, my point would be also, again, from this kind of background of like, or inspired or informed by this radical democratic idea of democracy, which sees democracy as this kind of social life and also understands we have to expand democratic demands to more and more social sphere. So if we want to think about democratic control in this kind of more digital mediated society, then we also have to look at we also have to think about what this actually means in the workplace, for example, right? So, for example, we can see that um, a lot of problems in workplaces are with civilians. So I think key to democratizing is then that workers get a say, get a democratic control on their workplace about how technology is actually used. And now this we can also think now and expand this thought on like all other forms of uh, associations we are part of, right? Universities, for example, especially now, like in the pandemic, the question of how university should use, or like how everyone part of this, everyone who kind of is the university in a way, right? Or, um, it, like that there is a discussion how they want to use technology in a way that technology can actually support their learning. And not what we can often see is used as a way to control the students, right? To kind of have the camera on or the students are really kind of, yeah, just control using technology as a way of, of controlling uh, students or squeezing out the people working at universities because then lectures are recorded and then there are for, they are suddenly not my own kind of property anymore because then the university can just do whatever they want to do with my recordings. Or what we have seen here in the UK a lot is because everything is online, they are just, um, and they are um, recruiting so many students, so many more students than actually the usual capacity is. So then the lecturers and other university staff, they end up with so many, etc. I mean, there are so many stories to tell about this. So what I want to say is that we have to have this conversation of how we want to use technology in a way that it actually serves us and not profit, right? And this, and it might seem obvious to ask this question, but then maybe if you think back like 40 years or so, so there were like a few kind of hippies who warned us, right? So the kind of climate catastrophe and we have to really protect our environment and no one really was kind of taking them seriously. And I feel it's a bit like with technologies these days. So, so there is, this is my impression, there's not much um, discussion about how we want to use technologies, what are potential dangers. I mean, when they talk about this, when politicians talk about this, it's often also on the European level, it's often more like they think about these kind of more uh, like e uh, economic strategies, right? On, and these kind of strategies of how to position Germany, for example, in these kind of tech, global tech market? How can they become more competitive? How can they make sure this kind of everything under this kind of 
framework of digital sovereignty? How can they make sure they have their autonomy, they can protect their people, etc.? But there is so so I think what I try to contribute to this debate is like that we not only talk about uh, or that we have this conversation how we actually want to use this and that we open spaces uh, where we can have this conversation. I also see a, a lot of wonderful possibilities in this new understanding of democracy, Rahel. First, this, uh, the, the value of these spaces of encounter to have these kind of discussions, challenge the way we communicate, challenge the way we share our struggles, and also questioning how we get together. Another possibility which uh, was uh, somehow coming to my mind, uh, listening to you, is about that possibility of the occurrence of non-professional politicians, someone that, let's say, punctually infiltrate and inoculate provocations, conflicts, or, or even changes, and then uh, go back to his or her normal professional activity. That is one. And another wonderful is that once for good get rid of this, uh, let's say, dichotomy or prevalent binary logic in most of democratic resistance that if you are not with me you are against so this kind of you know of promiscuous encounters can at some point lead us to another of this understanding that our capacity as political agents to trigger real change and change somehow the the landscape we are uh, acting no I don't know if you, if this is uh, some of the possibilities you you can you can see. No, absolutely. No. Um I would really like to see this um as one form of uh yeah, transformation how we think about trans transforming our uh, our political institutions. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I think I said this before the fact that we had a chancellor for 16 years is for me something quite scary in a democracy but yeah but maybe it's also not the most important question but it's more like on a symbolic level i think yeah i think we could do better yeah i mean maybe just to um return for a moment to this um question that francel brought up regarding the digital um we recently had a very interesting um conversation at uh, mudam in luxembourg city with hannes grasegger Uh, based uh, essentially around questions of uh, digital platforms uh, that are based on, let's say, constitutional agreements. So basically how to create safe spaces in inverted commas in which there's a kind of, let's say, Mufian understanding of uh, agreement to disagree, but that there's still certain rules, let's say, like in a kind of democratic arena. And... I wanted to use this maybe as a kind of entry to go back to the beginning and also maybe back to your beginning, <laughs> um, both in terms of maybe you telling us a little bit about your, let's say, personal background in terms of how you ended up uh, in this particular role that you're now inhabiting, but also um, returning to Move, Chantal Move, because I think she's been quite important in your kind of upbringing, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So maybe first to this, uh, to this question of, or to your yeah, question comment on, on this kind of civic, civic platforms, right? So we can see that they become more and more influential in, in forms of governing. And so there's even this term, um, how is it like platform 
urbanism. Yeah, I think it's called like platform urbanism. And um, so what we can see here is like everything from participatory budgeting to kind of setting the agenda together and and voting on um, what is a priority in the city and uh, having conversations about uh, new proposals for for like like a bill and all these kind of things and um, and also we can see that more and more political parties are actually using digital platforms to um, yeah to have conversation to they would always say to increase participation of their members to have uh, yeah to 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 democratize their party structures what we can also see is that or some people would then um, some people who who did like studies on the this like Paolo Giabaldo, for example, so he wrote this book on digital parties. So he found out that um, what you can often see is that these platforms, these digital platforms, they reinforce um, inequalities because of the attention economy. Right. So if you if you let's say have many followers, or if you already have like yeah, you are quite well known, then a digital platform can actually, um, yeah, work in your favor. And so this is why, um, yeah, quite some people are skeptical uh, or this this question of like, if a digital platform immediately translates into uh, into more participation and this equals more democracy. So many people are actually quite skeptical about this. Yeah, so I don't know if this answers your question or if I can should say a bit more about this. I'm happy to say so, but aware of our time. <laughs> yeah, no, it totally uh, answers the question. I, I guess uh, I was also wondering a bit about why um, the conceptual frame, let's say, of uh, moves agonistic pluralism is so important for you or interesting in terms of your practice. Yeah, so, so going back to the very beginning, um, that my background is a political theorist. So I'm a political theorist and I'm, I'm interested in this question of democracy, digitalization, and also the possibility of, um, yeah, radical social transformation. So, so my take always is, I would say, to bring together all these questions, so questions of democracy and digitalization with questions of power. And this is, this approach is very much in, inspired, influenced by initially like Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian uh, philosopher and his uh, theory, his hegemonic theory, but then um, later by Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Laclau, who kind of adapted or expanded Gramsci theory, like more thinking about then democracy and what could it mean for radicalizing democracy or like for a project of radical democracy, a political project of radical democracy. Because we always have to um, differentiate between the idea or the idea of democracy and then obviously the political project of democracy. And I I'm, I'm probably wasn't very precise uh, during my talk, but um, yeah. Um, but actually, it, it, it's good to kind of um, always make clear what one is actually talking about. So, so Chantal Move is, is doing both. So see, on the one hand, she is thinking about a political project of radical democracy and here the idea is to um to so this political project of radical democracy should replace um um the neoliberal political project right 
so and um yeah and so what really i think what really inspired me or what was really fascinating about her approach is this idea which i touched upon already the idea of um thinking of democracy or limiting democracy not just to a political sphere but thinking it more in terms of um expanding these democratic demands to more and more social spheres and also this idea of the role of conflict for democracy so that conflict is is like a condition for democracy and then the task of democracy again is also to enable conflict and to make uh, conflict uh, visible and yeah and i think this is now what i'm what i'm quite in my work really tried to do um, um in these past uh 10 years or something i'm i'm occupied with these ideas and uh, so in my for example in my in my um Dissertation in my PhD, I looked at a notion of experimental democracy. So I develop an idea, a theory of political action um, and this notion of experimental democracy, which is um, basically to say uh, what I said at the very, very beginning, kind of criticizing this idea of democracy as a practice of problem resolution and instead suggesting we should think about democracy as a practice of problematization. And the experiment, the experiment is exactly this. So the experiment is not about learning uh, something, like learning what is like this kind of idea of trial and error, but the experiment is the, the way how I introduce it to the literature is a political practice of conflict provocation. And now I probably could talk a lot about this, but I won't. And I will just briefly give you an idea of my postdoc project. Um, but here you can see, I just wanted to um, yeah, give you an idea of, of my PhD and, and show you how this is also inspired by this radical democratic thought. And But I, what I try to do is I, I try to go beyond MOVE, um, um, but I guess I don't have the time now to, to spell this out. Um, so in my, what I do now in my postdoc project is I try to think about a political theory of digital democracy. And again, like inspired by radical democratic thought, I try to understand what the task of democracy is in this more digital mediated society. And I try to do this by bringing together, especially like bringing this question of power, power relations, unequal power relationships uh, back to the table, because I'm quite frustrated with this idea that, uh, yeah, that, that so many people are just celebrating technology as these kind of yeah, is this kind of tool which might enhance more participation, which actually brings about more democracy over over us and is able to bring more social justice. And obviously there are also critical voices, but I feel what is rather absent, um, and here I try to contribute to like a broader discussion, is to think more how yeah, how digital technologies are actually reinforcing social inequalities and how this also is actually um how how we can actually also see this in 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 the notions of democracies which are applied in these discourses so i really closely look at how democracy is understood how democratization is understood to then say why this is limited why this is problematic and then here again i try to 
advocate for this understanding of democracy as a practice of problematization. Because, and this is maybe just one final thought on this, because what we can see with these technologies is also these machine learning algorithms, for example. So more and more um, political decisions are actually um, done by, for example, machine learning algorithms, right? So we see these machine learning algorithms uh, applied when it comes to deciding who gets social benefits, uh, who gets a visa, etc. So, and then the question is like, okay, well, what about all these kind of political conversations, all these kind of processes where we can actually negotiate, where we can talk about all of this, like where conflicts, where we can actually have conflicts over all these kind of decisions. They, they disappear in these spaces. So the more and more technology we see applied in these political processes, the more and more conflicts disappeared. And the more and more we see, so the promise of these technologies is to bring more certainty. While my point would be, my argument is to say, um, the problem is not the uncertainty. The problem is actually the certainty which these technologies promise us because democracy is all about uncertainty. Democracy is all about conflict. If we end up, um, if we end up trying to eliminate spaces for uncertainty on conflict, we will in the end um, yeah, we'll probably lose democracy at all. I mean, I'm aware that we have to close soon because you have to go into a meeting, but I just wanted to uh, maybe ask two last questions regarding, let's say, your understanding of your own role also. I thought it was quite interesting because you just mentioned the name or the word advocate. So is this also something that you consider yourself to be? And also in the context of, let's say, questions of agency, Uh, and questions of role? Um, I think I see my role as someone, so as someone trying to bring together theory and practice. And the reason for this is that the way how I actually came to theory was through the practice. So I was, um, yeah, as a, I was quite engaged in different political struggles. And then at one point I was quite frustrated feeling, yeah, not being able to change anything. And then I also feel the urge of making more sense of what is actually the problem and also understanding better the conditions of my own, of my own, um, of my own actions. So this is then, this was the moment probably Yeah, 10 years ago or, or even more, like when I turned to political theory and I found quite, I actually found a vocabulary which helped me to make sense of all of this. So, and since then, I mean, I'm, I'm so aware that talking about political theory or like that all this kind of thinking in these very abstract categories that often it leaves us wondering why this is relevant. So what I try to, I see, my, I mean, this is maybe a bit too, too much to say, but I really want to, I think the way how I see political theory is that in the best case, it helps us to guide our thinking and our, our practices, right? So it shouldn't, for me, it's not something I just do for myself to enjoy myself. So I really want to, um, yeah, also inspire other people to, 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 uh, yeah, maybe pick up on, or like, like to, to maybe even, yeah, maybe pick up a book, like a political theory book and, and just giving it a, giving it a try. So the interesting thing is when I studied uh, political science, 
I was always interested in philosophy, but then I took classes in political theory. And Chantal, I remember I had one seminar uh, on Chantal's move work, and it was by far the most difficult and challenging seminar. So I almost felt that I haven't understood anything. I felt so, so challenged. And then now it's so interesting for me because in the end it was the seminar which probably inspired me the most, even though I felt I haven't understood anything. But for some reason, there were like a few kind of bits, glimpses where I thought, oh, this is really, like, really evoked my curiosity. And then I just followed up on this. And uh, yeah, and now I think what I try to do is I try to, in my work, I really try to, obviously, I try to really engage with heavy theory. So this is what I have done in my PhD. This is what I'm doing now. But at the same time, I want to have all these conversations with like all different people. I want to come together with people from all different backgrounds. I want to be, I want to have conversations in all different uh, institutions, like um, from like art and cultural institutions to a ministry to more like activist settings. So I think the most, the most joyful, the most inspiring thing for me is to, yeah, to come together, to have these conversations, to share experiences. Uh, and this is how I learned the most. I think it's super interesting because for me, um, I mean, it's maybe kind of funny to say this since we're also saying this in the context of a kind of institutional slash university podcast, but I'm very interested in non-academic language as a form of also opening doors. And I think you're extremely good, at least in the text that I've read, you're extremely good in breaking down language. And I think for me, this kind of practice of yours, it's almost kind of like a midwife, you know, like assisting the process of giving birth. And that to me is quite close to design. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, you shouldn't be too shy in terms of saying that you hope that some people will pick up books, but I think some people will really use this to shape alternative futures. You just listened to the second episode of Cultures of Assembly, a podcast and research trajectory of the new chair of urban regeneration at the University of Luxembourg. We would like to thank our guest, Hahel Zeus. This podcast series is a collective work at the chair of urban regeneration We produce immersive research by exploring site-specific materials alongside publics and their narratives. We also share experiences by engaging into conversations with international researchers, artists, curators, politicians, economists and activists. The soundtrack was made by Ugne and Maria. Thank you for listening. And stay alert.